Today, I'm going to discuss the latest on Zack Snyder's Justice League Director's Cut and how the fans actually won. At least we think. And we're finally going to delve into part two of my series on Indiana Jones, serving up everything regarding the dark sequel to Raiders of the Lost Ark. Of course, I'm talking about Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Prepare to meet Kali in hell on this edition of What a Time to Be Alive. I'm Lou, and I grew up in New York City in the 70s and 80s on a steady diet of comic books, Flame on! cartoons, rock and roll, monster and sci-fi films. Flash forward to the present, and all the geek properties I got picked on for enjoying as a kid are now captivating and creating fans globally in the form of comic conventions, major studio films, and hit series. And the momentum shows no signs of slowing down. My fellow geeks, we have won. And to that I say, what a time to be alive. Saddle again. I'm back. I'm back in the saddle again. Yes, I am back in the saddle. What's up, everyone? This is What a Time to Be Alive, the Geek Culture Podcast. I'm Lou Acosta, and I'm almost sure that you're just like my mom during my teenage years when I was out maybe a little too late. Thought I cleverly snuck in the house, turned on the lights and was absolutely horrified to find my mother sitting there with one raised eyebrow saying, where the fuck have you been? Well, where have I been indeed? Listen, I think the past couple of months has been a difficult time for everyone, but no excuses, Wapin Nation. I'm going to take my man pill, make my bed. I want to be here when you need me the most, and I need you too. But hey, I'm here now, so what do you say we just be like good friends who haven't seen each other for a long time and pick up where we left off? And by the way, you got that 20 bucks you owe me? Wapination, let's crack into it. Okay, right off the bat, we haven't caught up in a spell. I gotta hit you with my take on some recent geek news that I'd be remiss if I didn't chime in on. Ever since its release in 2018, Warner Brothers' long-hyped and ill-prepped DC hero team-up Justice League has long been the subject of debate. Now, with a budget topping a staggering 750 million and then making 656 million at the box office, I'm no master mathematician over here, but Justice League became one of that year's biggest financial disappointments at the box office, in addition to being just another sad entry in Warner Brothers' attempts to build a strong cinematic universe of DC Comics-related characters. Just to give you some context, Sony's Amazing Spider-Man 2, starring Andrew Garfield and released in 2014, was the least successful Spider-Man feature in the history of Spider-Man features and still managed to top Justice League globally and in international markets. And Not For Anything was quite a shitty take on Spider-Man. I personally hated it. I think the reasons for making that film were very transparent so Sony could hang on to the rights. Mm-hmm. Anyway, depending on what you read and whom you speak to, the critical and box office failure of Justice League can be attributed to any number of things. So let's take a trip back in time to January of 2017. Director Zack Snyder had what he considered to be his optimal version of Justice League, clocking in at almost four hours long. Four hours! Jesus. Yes. What? 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 
Yes. Jesus. What? Yes. What? You, you said what? However, he knew it was something the studio wouldn't release. Warner Brothers wanted a cut in the two-hour range, and so he delivered a rough version with an approximate two-hour, 20-minute running time. That was the first cut the studio saw. Both sides agreed that there was still a lot of work that needed to be done before its November release. However, Zack Snyder had to leave production of the film due to a family tragedy, and this left the director most synonymous with the success of Marvel Studios' The Avengers, Joss Whedon, to come in and pick up the pieces. This entailed reshoots, writing and shooting new scenes, and the entirety of post-production all in his hands. So, is this where and how the film failed? Did Zack Snyder actually shoot all the scenes he wanted to fill out that four-hour mark with? And would that version of the film, the original version, the quote, Zack Snyder cut, ever see the light of day? Well, oddly enough, it was two years after the film's release that the zenith was reached and a hashtag about the film would become a worldwide trend. Hashtag release to Snyder Cut is the most tweeted hashtag about a movie that WB has ever made. But according to Zack Snyder, quote, it's a movie they've never released. Now, in the time since its release, something unusual happened. A growing movement of fans rallied by the hashtag release to Snyder Cut had called, agitated, petitioned, even bought a Times Square billboard and chartered a plane to fly a banner over Comic-Con for Snyder's version to be released. And on the film's second anniversary, the hashtag had its biggest day ever, with even the movie stars Gal Gadot and Ben Affleck adding their voices on Twitter. One would think that those battle cries would still fall upon deaf ears and fade away into the ethernet... ether. That is until recently when Snyder confirmed at the end of an online watch party of his 2013 movie Man of Steel that his version of Justice League, the Zack Snyder cut, will indeed be coming to the HBO digital streaming service and is expected to debut in 2021. Huge, right? Now, here's what's rumored to be in the Zack Snyder cut. Number one, Dark Side. It's not only been long rumored, but confirmed that scenes containing DC's big baddie Dark Side were indeed shot for Justice League and furthermore that he was to be prominently featured in the film. Number two, Superman's return making more sense in the film true, it does seem that they spent so much time on the buildup leading to the return of the Man of Steel that when we actually see him return on film that it all seems a little off. And how about a little exposition on Flash and Cyborg? I feel the lack of buildup and the rushed pacing leading up to this team-up film are what really hurt it. However, Snyder's cut of Justice League allegedly spent more time in the lives of Flash, Cyborg, and Aquaman. Check this out. We might get Green Lanterns, Time Travel, The Martian Manhunter. Lex Luthor was also going to be in it more than just an innocuous post credit scene. And can we just talk for a minute about the entire third act? Joss Whedon's reshoots are most evident during the climactic battle scene in Russia. Snyder has said before that things in the final film like like the Russian family that Flash saves and the root-like structures that grow out of the ground weren't part of the original version of the film. Matter of fact, one of Justice League's original trailers actually shows Darkseid's arrival. Now that was what's rumored, but here's what we know. Contrary to popular belief, the cast will not be back for reshoots on this one. The rap's Umberto Gonzalez cleared the air stating that, quote, there's not gonna be any reshoots of any kind with any actors. It's just additional dialogue. And here's something that hasn't been reported yet. Snyder, 
did want to shoot and he wanted to do additional photography, but HBO Max said, no, that's not happening. We'll give you money for post-production, for special effects, for scoring, and even ADR, but no reshoots of any kind on this movie. He added, this movie is basically one and done. And this is to close the loop, to finish the story. Maybe not the whole story, because Snyder did have like a three to five picture plan, but this Snyderverse, we'll call it, will end with the Snyder Cut. Don't expect any spinoffs for Batman or with Ben Affleck as Batman or any of that. So there you have it. Now, of course, news of this has spurned the trend of releasing post-mortem director's cuts of critically panned films ranging from the debacle that was the 2016 reboot of Ghostbusters, now rumored to have an excruciating three-hour cut waiting in the wings. <laughs> to even a director's cut of David Ayer's lukewarm Suicide Squad. Uh, I personally cannot wait for the six-hour director's cut of the Nancy Myers rom-com classic Something's Gotta Give, where Diane Keaton cries for a combined two hours and 40 minutes, and Jack Nicholson has seven heart attacks. Bring it on, all of it. Not. All right, Wapination, rant over. Time to get to the task at hand. When we last left off, I did a deep dive on Raiders of the Lost Ark, and today we're going to continue with the dark and tonality 1984 sequel, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. If adventure has a name, it must be Indiana Jones. Dr. Jones found the Archie for me, and he's going to deliver him now. Okay, who is this here? Hachi! Put the gun away, Sonny. Nothing shocks me. I'm a scientist. And what sort of research would you do on me? Nocturnal activities. What position I like to sleep in? Mating customs. So you're an authority in that area? Years of field work. Told them to go forth and combat evil. And to help him, he gave him five sacred stones with magical properties. Magic rock, fortune, and glory. You don't believe me? You will, Dr. Jones. You will become a true believer. We are going to die. From Steven Spielberg and George Lucas, Indiana Jones. And the Temple of Doom. Released on May 23rd, 1984, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom was a huge hit when released, but didn't match the box office of Raiders of the Lost Ark, and oddly enough, was the subject of a surprising amount of controversy. But I'm gonna get to that later. Set in 1935, a few of you keen-eyed viewers out there might notice that the events in Temple of Doom take place a full year before the events of Raiders of the Lost Ark technically making this film a prequel. Now, growing up, this was my first exposure to the concept, much less the word prequel. I've always been curious as to why the filmmakers went this route, considering this move wasn't even critical to the plot of the film or the arc, no pun intended, of the franchise. So what's the story behind this? Here's filmmaker George Lucas on why they made Temple of Doom a prequel. Indiana Jones is episodic. Each film itself is its own unique reality and it's, you don't really want to carry ideas over from one movie to the other. So one of the things we decided is that we didn't want to have Nazis in it. 
We wanted to deal with something else. And so it was easier to move it backwards than forwards uh, in time. And uh, we wanted to avoid, why isn't Karen Allen in the picture? You know, we loved her. You know, if it was afterwards, then you sort of have to deal with that. And if it's before, you don't have to deal with it at all. But basically, in terms of the main parts of the story, uh, it wasn't a continuation at all. So let me get this straight. They made Temple of Doom a prequel because they didn't want to use the same bad guys. Now, reportedly, they had ideas about a, quote, monkey king, whatever the fuck that is. And they had ideas for a Haunted Castle movie. But then Steven Spielberg had just done Poltergeist, and he didn't want to do that again. So they were struggling to come up with another MacGuffin, and they couldn't find anything as good as the Lost Ark, and I understand that those are big shoes to fill. So they ended up using the Sankara Stones, which really is a little obscure. However, one teensy problem is this. Indy spends most of Raiders professing not to believe in religion or magic, until he sees the Ark open and a guy's fucking face gets melted off. But in Temple of Doom, there's plenty of magic that Indiana witnesses. So taking place before Raiders of the Lost Ark, did he just forget all that? Is it movie magic or just plausible deniability? Anyway, now I gotta tip my hat to the filmmakers for always doing something clever with the formulaic first shot, featuring the Paramount Mountain logo, which usually dissolves into something practical in the first scene. In Raiders, it dissolved into a similar mountain in the South American jungle. But in Temple of Doom, it dissolves into a design on an ornate gong that paves the way to an unforgettable opening musical number. Now, I'm going to go on record as saying, and here comes the backlash, I can feel it already, that Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom is my favorite film in the franchise. Yeah, come at me, bro. Say hi to your mother for me, okay? In Temple of Doom, our main villain is the occult priest Mola Ram, played by Indian actor Almarish Puri, and this popular actor with the rumbling voice and piercing gaze pulls beating hearts out of the chest of his victims and oversees an underground mine where underfed children are put to work. Good God, that is dark. Now, Mola Ram is the head of a cult called the Thuggy Cult that's possessed the young prince of Pankot Palace. And he's also been stealing magically endowed artifacts from around the region to harvest their powers and become a supreme overlord, as most villains do. He worships a goddess called Kali, which basically looks like a cadaverous demon. So before sneaking into Molaram's lair, Indiana Jones accompanied by Willie's... Whoa, 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 whoa! Hold up. I feel like I'm putting the cart before the horse here because there is plenty of time to get into not only what made Temple of Doom a controversial and history-making film, that's right, and I know this is the second time I've put off discussing the controversy of this film, but I kind of feel it's important to give at least the two people out there who've never seen this film a plot summary. That being said... For all its dark tonality, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom opens up at a nightclub in Shanghai with a pretty light and entertaining musical number featuring the future Mrs. Spielberg, Kate Capshaw, belting out the upbeat Cole Porter ditty, Anything Goes, in Mandarin. This opening number is awesome in its choreography, which is heavily influenced by the 1933 musical film 42nd Street. 
Not to mention that the set design of the entire opening scene alone seems like it's lifted straight from Casablanca. Kate Capshaw, who plays nightclub singer Willie Scott, expands on the peaks and valleys of learning an entire song in Mandarin. had a fantasy of singing and the movie gave me an opportunity to learn to sing however it wasn't exactly the dream come true because i had to sing in chinese the musical member Nina jones was a pleasure to do because I'm, i've always wanted to direct a a musical movie from beginning to end and, and i've been a little frustrated by that urge because so many other things have come up in my life to make before I do a musical. Now, unlike its predecessor, the open of Temple of Doom first shows us our hero in nightclub formal wear rather than his traditional archaeological work duds. Here's director Steven Spielberg on more of what prompted that decision. When uh, George first came up with the idea of Indiana Jones, George uh, envisioned a rough and tumble adventure. He also envisioned much more of a, a champagne hero. Uh, a hero who can do well with the ladies and wears tuxedos all the time and is suave and debonair. And I really objected to that the first time around. I thought we should really meet Indiana Jones in action with his hat and his leather jacket um, and his pouch and his belt and whip. But as, um, as, as time wore on and we did so well with the first film, I was a little braver with the second one. And then George said, come on, Steve, please, let's just show him in a tuxedo. Let's present Indiana Jones in, in, in the best possible light. Let's show this guy as a, as a glamour hero. So I said, all right, George. And we uh, went ahead and designed a 15 to 18 minute third act climax from an unseen Indiana Jones adventure. You won't have to wait to the exposition and the development of all the characters. All you get is the dessert. And uh, I thought that would be a real great way of hooking the audience into the spirit of Indiana Jones. Also, just to backtrack to my previous episode, which covered Raiders and the origins of Indiana Jones, it's in the archives. This nightclub scene actually brings us back to the creative seeds that were being planted by Lucas and Spielberg. Indiana Jones, as I mentioned in our last episode, is heavily influenced by Saturday morning adventure serials and early Sean Connery era James Bond films. My name is Pussy Galore. I must be dreaming. Matter of fact, as mentioned in my previous episode, which if you didn't get my drift before, is available in the archives, it was Steven Spielberg who was looking to make a Bond film after finishing Close Encounters, when good chum George Lucas kind of half-truthed and conned him into making Raiders. You son of a bitch. He's probably like, oh, you're uh, looking to do a Bond film. Well, do I have an idea for you, Steve? That is right up your alley. The rest, as they say, is cinematic history. When we first see Indiana Jones in Temple of Doom, He's descending the staircase of the Shanghai nightclub, wearing formal white tuxedo jacket evening wear, looking every bit of Sean Connery's James Bond. A true departure for our whip-toting archaeologist, wouldn't you say? Now, it's in this scene where Jones narrowly escapes the clutches of Lao She, a crime boss in Shanghai who met Jones to exchange a rather huge diamond for the ashes of Emperor Nuhachi, first emperor of the Manchu dynasty. Now, during the trade-off and unbeknownst to him, Jones drinks champagne that was given to him by Lao She that's laced with fast-acting poison. And naturally, Indiana Jones is not going to take this shit sitting down. 
as the nightclub erupts into a hilarious scene and chaotic hail of bullets, henchmen, balloons, dancing girls, and an awesome game of hot potato with the diamond on the floor in the middle of a spilled bucket of ice. All of this ensuing as Jones is trying to get his hands on the antidote for the poison he just drank. Ultimately, Jones gets the antidote, grabs Willie and throwing caution to the wind as he so often does, jumps out the window to escape. Now, with Indian Willie hanging from the nightclub awning several stories above ground is where we get a glimpse of what is an awesome and one of many Easter eggs embedded throughout the franchise. The neon marquee of the nightclub, which reads Club Obi-Wan. Now, for any of you out there who live under a rock, this is a reference to noble Jedi Knight Obi-Wan Kenobi from the George Lucas Helm Star Wars franchise. With long shot luck, and, and by the way, any Marvel aficionado out there should get that reference. Do I know my audience, huh? Anyway, with long shot luck, Indian Willie falls straight down into the cab of a vehicle driven by Indy's 11-year-old sidekick Short Round, played by Hoi K. Kwan. With Short Round and Willie in tow, Indy moves to flee Shanghai in an airstrip scene that is not only strongly inspired by Casablanca, but features the oddest blink-and-you'll-miss-it cameo in an Indiana Jones film. Ah, Dr. Jones, I'm a Webber. I spoke with your assistant. Uh, we've managed to secure three seats. But there might be a slight inconvenience as you will be riding on a cargo full of live poultry. Is he kidding? Madam, it's the best I could do in such short notice. Kevin, aren't you Willie Scott, the famous American female vocalist? That there was none other than Ghostbusting Blues brother Dan Aykroyd. Now, what's the connection there, right? As it turns out, Dan Aykroyd started one of Steven Spielberg's early films, the World War II satire 1941. Now, what I've always loved about the Indiana Jones films is that they're the perfect synergy of action, adventure, and comedy. And that's evident as Indian Company escape on a cargo aircraft that, unbeknownst to them, is owned by Lao She. And scene! <laughs> nice try, Lao She! They think they've made their escapes, but they're victims of pilot saboteurs who dump the fuel and exit via parachute. Now, our heroes narrowly manage to escape by jumping out of the plane on an inflatable raft just before it crashes into the mountainside, rides down the mountain slopes, and falls into a raging river on a crazy whitewater ride. Now, one of the major nitpicks about Temple of Doom over the years is about that same scene where they use an inflatable raft as a parachute and the fact that it's overly absurd. But what audiences don't know is that that scene is real. Kind of. Now, stuntmen didn't really jump out of a plane with just a raft to get them safely to the ground, but the practical effect itself is real. Since the filmmakers were having a rough time figuring how to logistically pull off the stunt, Producer Frank Marshall went over and challenged the manufacturer to come up with a way to have the parachute effect play out practically in a single shot for the movie. The raft makers rigged up a pull system that inflated once the weighted raft, including three life-size dummies standing in for the actors, was tossed off the plane. Crazy, right? So eventually, after that whole crazy Megillah, they arrive at the village of Mayapur in northern India. They come across impoverished villagers who believe that those three have been sent by a god Shiva to retrieve these sacred stones stolen from their shrine, as well as the community's missing children from evil forces inside nearby Pankot Palace. Indiana Jones, fucking stand-up guy, 
agrees to go to Pankot to investigate, but during the journey, he kind of hypothesizes that the stone may be one of the five fabled Sankara stones that promise fortune and glory. I think that somebody believes the good luck rock from this village is one of the lost Sankara stones. What is Sankara? Fortune and glory, kid. Fortune and glory. Now, unlike Marion from Raiders, they make Willie Scott out to be less than a peer in this adventure and more like a goofy damsel type of a character used for comedy relief. Truly, Capshaw's character gets the short end of the stick in many scenes in Temple of Doom, as you'll soon find out. Now, when they get to Pankot Palace, they're met by the Maharaja's, like, you know, right-hand man, this guy named Shatar Lal, at a dinner of <laughs> truly memorable and gruesome cuisine with the Maharaja himself. Indy questions Lal about the villagers' claims, and Lal dismisses them, calling them superstition. But Indy also brings up the history of the area, stating that it was once the center for a fanatical religious cult who worshipped the Hindu god Kali. So then Lal gets all lit up when Indy claims that the sacred stone was stolen from the village, and further points out several instances of Indy's own lack of discretion and moral judgment while seeking other treasures from different parts of the world. Now, on the note of unique cuisine, what I alluded to earlier about Willie Scott getting the short end of the stick, in Temple of Doom, <laughs> Willie Scott has everything but the kitchen sink thrown at her. Giant vampire bats, snakes, chilled monkey brains, and mwah, the eyeball soup. And not to mention, one of the most horrific and ballsy scenes any actor has ever had to endure, the infamous bug scene. With more on these Temple of Doom gross-out scenes is Steven Spielberg and the woman who had to endure it all, Kate Capshaw. I cannot believe she still married him after all that horseshit. Ah, oh, sneak surprise. What's the surprise? And I think that scene at the dinner table does sort of capture that spirit. I mean, we did have a lot of fun discussing it because it was, oh, let's sit around just thinking the most horrible things you could think of, but it's done very tongue-in-cheek. I mean, that was something that I'd always want to put in a movie, and Steve sort of has a sense of humor that fits right into that. He loves practical jokes on people, and I know he used to do a lot of that with his sisters. He used to, you know, throw spiders at him and things like that that all boys do, but he really still loves to, you know, make creepy crawly things and have everybody go, oh my God. I, I said, what about a meal of the worst stuff you would never imagine eating as long as you would live? You know, like eating eels and eating bugs and eating brains from monkeys. I think in a way, by doing a kind of dark version of the Indiana Jones series, it gave permission to poke some fun at ourselves and have a scene that was really, you know, toward gross out comedy. So we had rubber bugs with, you know, don't worry, when you watch the movie, inside of bugs is custard. And inside the monkey brains was custard with raspberry sauce. Uh, do you have anything simple, like soup? And also inside the soup was just rubber eyes that had these little stick stickums, and you could, you, each eye stuck, and Kate was told that she had to really stir the pot to get the eyes to come unglued from the bottom of the pot to flip the surface. Yeah, there's something on the ground. In sitting around with Gloria and Bill and George knocking out the story, we were trying to think, okay, what's worse than snakes? What can we do in the follow-up of Raiders of the Lost Ark, now a globally known movie? What can we do that won't let the audience down? And I don't know whose idea it was, but somebody said bugs. And so I said, yeah, great. We'll get millions of bugs. 
shook. As long as I don't move, I'm okay. Frozen in position. Stop breathing. It's a flying uh, scorpion. Yeah, great. I became the bugmeister, and uh, I found a guy in England who did bugs. That one's on my neck. Can we get that one off my neck? So we created this whole really disgusting bug uh, hotel where we kept the bugs and uh, we had all sizes and varieties and Kate Capshaw was not acting when we were dropping the bugs on her. They made me do the most awful thing. I have to play with bugs. Do the bugs. No. Do the bugs. No. She promised me when she wouldn't do the snake, she'd do the bugs. Okay, I'll do the bugs. Do the bugs. I was really asking people, is there a pill? There must be something I can take to keep myself from freaking out because uh, I don't want everyone to look at the movie and go, she's on drugs. Uh, but I did take something um, that was like a relaxant. And I came to the set, I was like, hi, Stephen. He goes, hi. I go, and he said, we're gonna do the bugs. And I go, okay. He said, well, I'm gonna come, you know, I'll stand with you. And I went, okay. He said, they stand here, we're gonna pour some, bu some bugs on top of you. All right, where will they be coming from? Well, we're gonna pour a bunch of buckets of bugs from up above you, and they're gonna just come down onto you, and it's gonna be several buckets. Okay. Cut, 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 okay, Robert. You know, that's how I was the whole day. Okay, we gotta get Robert down here. We don't have enough bugs to make the scene work. Bugs are a um, form of underlife that absolutely drives me out of the room and perhaps up a greased pole if that's what it takes to get the bugs off me. I hate insects. Uh, there's something about phobias that are, that are just, just, you know, unpredictable. And I directed those sequences most of the time from a ladder. I dealt with the bugs like I dealt with the snake. I did this sort of mental exercise every morning. They're just innocent little bugs who mean no harm at all. And they're crawling on my body like they might crawl on the table. I realized I could meditate 24 hours a day and it didn't buffer the experience. The worst thing was having large bugs placed strategically on me, where you can literally feel all their legs sort of grip you. It's good luck to have a cricket on your neck. The special animal trainer would start at my waist and my arms and work up to my shoulders, and then he would start placing them in my hair. And I would always be afraid that they would start crawling into the inside of my hair. And I had to like just keep breathing. I closed my eyes. Everybody was very quiet on the set. It was as good as working with bugs could have been. There's something on the ground. Phil asked definitely fortune cookies. In the Temple of Doom, of course, Instead of snakes, they went with bugs. Another one of those things that really scare the bejesus out of a lot of people. And there's just some horrendous looking bugs in there. That's no cookies. One of them was actually a Malaysian stick insect. It's like, they're called a leaf bug as well. It won't bite you, but it looks like it should hurt you terribly. It's a big bug. There's black-headed centipedes, which really hurt, and they're very fast. And there's tons of stuff. There's Madagascar cockroaches, beetles of every assorted type. Get some of that. Okay, action on the bugs. I would say the most difficult of the three elements, snakes, bugs, or rats, were actually the bugs, because they're totally uncontrollable. But the bugs, they, they did creep you out, because they have those little things that get down your back and they get in your hair, and it just 
doesn't feel too good. Well, the problem with bugs is, you know, they're fast and they're small and they can escape. So it was very hard for us to keep this, the bugs in the confines of the set, the very small set we had built. You know, the bugs would literally be 25% less every day we shot and they would escape onto the real estate of Elstree Studios and then they'd eventually get into the probably the ecosystem of the surrounding communities. And by the last day of shooting, we only had 25% of our bugs left. Okay, we gotta get Robert down here. We don't have enough bugs to make the scene work. It's actually quite funny, because uh, people say, I want the bug to come from here to there and go up there and it's like, you get, it's a bug. <laughs> it's got the brain the size of a grain of sand if you're lucky, you know. So based on that, Kate Capshaw was understandably self-sedated to do those scenes. Now, Indy, Willie, and Short Round discover an underground temple beneath Pancot Palace, where they find this fanatical thuggy group practicing an ancient ritual of black magic and human sacrifice to Kali. Now, even though they possess three of the ancient stones, one of which belongs to the village, they're still missing two, and the thuggy have enslaved the village children to play Blood Diamond and dig for the last two stones within the mines of the palace. Mola Ram, who's the cult's villainous high priest, hopes to use the power of the five united stones to rule the world. I mean, that eh, sounds a little familiar. This may be the world's first Infinity Gauntlet. I'm sorry, Marvel. Now, our heroes witness a ritual in which Mola Ram barehandedly digs a man's beating heart out of his chest. Now, this guy survives. He's looking at Mola Ram and his own heart beating in his hand until he's lowered slowly into a lava pit, causing the beating heart to burst into flame. Now, controversy. The aforementioned scene where Molaram rips a beating heart from a man's chest, well, that was heavy duty material back in 1984. However, despite being a box office success, and I alluded to this earlier, Temple of Doom was plagued by quite a bit of controversy. The second film in the series, Temple of Doom was banned in India at the time of its release. And to be honest, it's not hard to see why the local censors were horrified at a movie considering it was set in colonial era India that stereotyped nearly every single character who had brown skin. With a proposed plot involving child slaves, human sacrifice and evil cults, Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom is decidedly darker in tone than Raiders of the Lost Ark, and it was meant to be that way. But man, you have to imagine what a hard sell this film was. George Lucas wanted a downbeat mood similar to the one in his Star Wars sequel, The Empire Strikes Back. Temple of Doom fell into George's philosophy that because in the Star Wars trilogy, you know, Empire Strikes Back was the darker of the two stories, George wanted the Indiana Jones series to follow a similar sine wave where it, we would dip into a kind of inner world or inner sanctum of darkness and human sacrifice with this whole Cali cult thing that George came up with for the second installment of this adventure trilogy. With Star Wars, like any story, things get bad before they get better. And by the nature of the fact that that was one story that had been split into three parts, the middle part is the darkest part. In Indiana Jones, because they're separate, it was really a matter of saying, why don't we make a little edgier movie? Make it a little bit darker, a little bit more um, scary. 
I wasn't really okay with that. I kind of resisted it. And, but George was tenacious that he wanted the second one to be dark, and I was worried it would be commercial enough. And, and it wasn't as commercial as the first one and the third one. But George thought it was an important thing that he wanted to do, and I certainly deferred to George's better judgment because he had seen this three-movie arc and this is what he wanted to do, and I was his director for hire. I was very happy to help realize his vision. Temple of Doom is definitely a tougher movie, but it was tougher intentionally. You know, pulling somebody's heart out, it had been done quite a bit before. And, uh, you know, the fact that the children were in jeopardy had been done a lot before. So these weren't ideas that were, oh my gosh, we're stepping over a line here. We're doing things that people have always done. The point was is that we did it better than anybody else did, which made it even more intense. Temple of Doom has long been considered to be the franchise's darkest installment, and that's all thanks to what was happening off-camera. Lucas and Spielberg attributed the extremely dark themes in Temple of Doom to their respective marriages that had broken up. Uh, I, have, I have heard of taking your work home with you, but man, did they bring the horrors of home to work on this one. What they had in mind was so dark that Raiders of the Lost Ark screenwriter Lawrence Kasdan turned down their offer to write the second film. He thought, quote, it was horrible. It's so mean. There's nothing pleasant about it. I think Temple of Doom represents a chaotic period in both their lives, and the movie, as a result, is very ugly and mean-spirited. End quote. In retrospect, even Lucas came to somewhat regret how dark their movie was telling Empire Magazine that, quote, part of it was I was going through a divorce. Steven had just broken up and we weren't in a good mood. So we decided on something a little more edgy. It did end up darker than we thought it would be. And once we got out of our bad moods, which went on for a year or two, we kind of looked at it and went, hmm, we certainly took that to the extreme. But that's kind of what we wanted to do for better or worse. Okay, so I feel like Lucas kind of contradicted himself. He's saying like, well, you know, I'm going to put on my Lucas voice here, which is very much like Kermit the Frog. Uh, you know, the uh, the uh, movie was, uh, was so dark that, well, the reasons for us making the movie so dark is that, uh, hi-ho, is that, uh, you know, I was getting divorced from that whore. Um, and, uh, you know, Stephen was going uh, through his marital woes. And, uh, you know, um, I think the uh, I decidedly took on a tone of, uh, you know, and reflected the ways we were feeling at the time. But regardless of that, it's uh, exactly the way we wanted it to turn out. Hi-ho! I still hate that whore. Burn in hell. Yay! To expand even further on this controversy, and the fact that I said earlier that Temple of Doom is a history-making film, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom gave birth to the PG-13 rating. Let's think about this, shall we? A movie that includes a man pulling the still-beating heart out of the chest of a very much alive man who is then lowered into a searing pool of lava to die, is rated a family-friendly PG by the Motion Picture Association of America? No, no, no. Parents and audience members were appalled by the violence in Spielberg's second Indiana Jones film, but the violence and horrific aspects weren't enough to warrant an R rating, one that would presumably cripple a film that relies so heavily on its targeted child demographic. Once a controversy about the violence in Temple of Doom arose, Spielberg wrote to the president of the MPAA, suggesting an in-between rating for movies of similar ilk. The director suggested four new potential examples, including PG-13, PG-14, 
RPG 2 or R13. I like R13 because it closely resembles like a Star Wars astromech droid. Anyway, so those would limit or allow certain audience members admittance between PG and R-rated films. The MPAA soon implemented the new system, oddly enough, labeling the film Red Dawn with the first ever PG-13 rating. Not Temple of Doom. I know, right? Even though it was Temple of Doom that created the PG-13 rating, the film was still labeled PG. However, every indie film that followed would garner a PG-13 rating. Now, to add insult to injury, all of the film's locations were found in India, but they couldn't shoot there. Producers and production designers traveled to India to scout and secure locations, but the local government rejected their permits because they found their script to be so offensive to Indian culture. As a result, the team decided to shoot exteriors in Sri Lanka, but mostly use matte paintings on the Paramount backlot. After its release, Temple of Doom was banned in India, but the ruling has since been rescinded. Now, in one of the more impressive action set pieces of the film, our heroes engage in a minecar high-speed chase that proves to be a much more perilous version of Disney World's Space Mountain. Here's the visual effects team and George Lucas on how they brought this awesome sequence to the screen. On Temple of Doom, I was uh, the effects supervisor here at ILM, and we had a lot of sequences. We had the big uh, mine chase sequence, going through the tunnels. Um, there was a great tunnel set that had been built full size that they could get quite a few shots off of. But when the camera pulled back and needed to see a lot of distance, then we came in with our model work. We had some script pages that basically described what you know, Stephen had in mind. And then Stephen invited us to come up with gags, basically things that could happen. For instance, going over the lava flow and you know the ski jump. But as soon as we got storyboard pages from Stephen. We built little sets using butcher paper and you know, railroad cars and took a video camera and shot a version of the sequence using this little video camera in this funky set just to see if it was going to play. And on the basis of that, Stephen was able to eliminate certain gags that he didn't think were necessarily going to pay off and, and accept other ones. The budget on that film was fairly tight. We didn't have unlimited amount of money by any means. So the construction cost to build our miniature sets of the mine tunnels and everything, I figured out was actually based on how big the camera was. And so what they did is they rigged a regular camera, regular still camera with a, with a motor on it. And taking the, the back out of the Nikon camera that pulls the film tight and put a movie uh, shuttle in there and run movie film through it instead of still film. And this little camera was on a little uh, mine car just like the other one, and then one would follow right after the other. And it worked great. And that meant because the camera now was only this big, our mine tunnels only needed to be this big, like a foot across, and we could actually make them out of aluminum foil. So we just bought a lot of aluminum foil, crunkled it up to look like a mine tunnel, painted it to look like rock, and for you know $1.98, we got uh, some great sets. And to then move the camera at a fast speed, we had to shoot really at a very slow speed. The camera was shooting one frame of film a second, so it was going very slowly along there. And that was fine for all the views looking ahead and looking back where nothing's going on. But there were scenes when you actually saw the characters that had to move. And those characters in there were then animated by Tom Sandemann using stop motion animation. So eventually the scene gets built up when you see it all together. It looked like continuous motion of a mind car. The action scenes in all three of these movies have been easy to come up with. But we had this big roller coaster 
sort of mine train chase actually in Raiders of the Lost Ark in the quarry, in the big mine quarry that I cut out because it was just too much to shoot in, in the time that I was given to make this movie. And that did carry over to Temple of Doom because it had been sitting out there and it was a really cool scene. So we just transplanted it from the first movie to the second movie. What we want to do is once they hit this part, we're going to have a flamethrower. Something can shoot up from both sides of the car, back there and back there. And it was also symbolic of a lot of what the critics were saying about these movies. These are e-ticket rides, they kept saying, like a Disneyland. I guess they meant Thunder Mountain or Space Mountain. So. George and I kind of said, well, why don't we give them a roller coaster ride? Let's give them an actual e-ticket ride, and that's how they get out of the, uh, the darkness. The end of this sequence brings about one of the best action humor scenes. To further complicate matters, Mullah Ram has his men topple a huge water tower to flood the mine tunnels to try and drive Indy out. With the mine track at an end, and their mine car careening without brakes, Indy uses his foot against the wheel to try and bring it to a stop, and this brings about one of the best action humor scenes. At the moment Indy stops the minecar, he gets a bit of a hot foot and starts screaming, Water! Water! The punchline? A rushing and life-ending floor-to-ceiling flood of water headed his way. This drives him to the opening at the end of the mine shaft, which is on the side of a mountain overlooking a steep cliff. Literal cliffhanger! Of course, they managed to make it out of this and segue nicely into one action scene after the other. I personally think the pacing of this film is great. Now, even though what's coming after is a cute, funny scene, I have misgivings with this. Now, even though what's coming after is a cute and funny scene, I have misgivings with this. In Temple of Doom, they revisit the whole famous sword fight gag made famous in Raiders of the Lost Ark, but they modify it. Basically, Indy is confronted this time by TWO swordsmen! Because how do you make something bigger and better? You add to it, literally. Just like the previous sword gag in Raiders, Indy is now confronted by two swordsmen displaying air-slicing maneuvers. This, of course, leads Indy to once again reach for his pistol in his holster. But the gag is, this time, he doesn't have his pistol. So Indy engages in hand-to-sword combat with the swordsman, getting behind one of them and using that guy's sword arm to fight off the other. It's kind of like when you're a, a puppeteer and you have your hand up a mannequin's ass. That thing. When in doubt, of course, he goes for the whip, disarms one of them, and chases them off screen as Indy runs to a full close-up tight shot of his face, screaming, only to stop, take a beat, turn around and run away, as he's now being chased by an army of swordsmen. So, here's my problem with this. Presumably, Temple of Doom is a prequel. Yet, we're playing off of something in the audience's timeline that happened in the first film. But in the timeline of the characters in the franchise, happens after Temple of Doom. This recycle kind of comes off as a cheap pop, if you ask me. And apparently, I'm not the only one who has his shorts in a twist over this. Filmmaker and Avengers scribe Joss Whedon had plenty to say with Cinema Blend about this sequence. What annoys Whedon is that it's an overt, disruptive joke that doesn't fit in Temple of Doom. Partially, as I said before, because the film is a prequel to Raiders of the Lost Ark and only makes sense if you've seen the previous film. He says, quote, You know that thing in Temple of Doom where they revisit the shooting trick? That's what you don't want. And I feel that's what all of culture is becoming. It's becoming that moment. 
Now the climax of Temple of Doom brings us to the famous rope bridge sequence that has Indy crossing a rope bridge over a chasm, in which he, Willie, and Short Round are surrounded on both sides by the Thuggy cult. Clearly out of tricks, Indy only sees one way out, securing a rope around his ankle and cuts the ropes holding the bridge together. Go ahead, fire up YouTube and watch this scene. It doesn't look like CG, nor does it look like a practical effect, as what looks to be a real-scale rope bridge with what appear to be people on it is cut in half, resulting in some of those poor folks to fall to their doom. But the question is, when I watch it over and over, how did they accomplish this? How does it look so seamless? Well, here's more on this awesome sequence from the visual effects supervisor George Gibbs and director Steven Spielberg. My name is George Gibbs. I had a reputation in the film industry as One Take George. One of the most interesting films I've ever worked on was Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. We went to Sri Lanka. We had to build this bridge that Harrison Ford had to cut in the film. We started five o'clock in the morning getting ready. We got everything prepared. We got the cable cutters on the bridge, and we got all the wires going out to our boxes and batteries and everything. And word got round, we're going to blow this bridge, because everybody's been coming there to see it being built. Just between us and the dam was a Bailey Bridge. It was covered with people. I mean, there must have been hundreds of people. And Harrison Ford said, well, I think that bridge back there is going to go before yours, George. <laughs> it said so many people on it. The night before, I said to Stephen, whatever you do, if you stop cameras, don't shout out cut. Just shout out stop cameras, because I might go and cut the bridge. And we had 10 cameras, and they're all winding up, getting ready, all in different positions. All yelling out, speed, speed, speed. All set to go, and the sun disappeared. And Stephen shouted out, stop cameras, stop cameras. And, and it all went like an echo through the valley. Stop cameras, stop cameras. God, it, was, it was daunting, it was so quiet. And then a gap in the clouds came again. Stephen said, right, turn over, we're gonna go now. And just as we all got speed, the clouds came again. And Stephen said, to, right, I'm going to have another try. He said, I'm going to go whether the sun shines or not. I've got to go. <laughs> and as luck would have it, right at that moment we got speed, there was a gap in the clouds, and we cut the bridge, and it went click, click, <laughs> click, click. It was an amazing scene. The dummies were sort of left in suspension, all throwing their arms around. Everybody collapsed. They, they were all congratulating me, and I think the reason they were so pleased, I shot it before lunch. <laughs> I have a terrible case of acrophobia, and it really affected me the first time I stepped out on the rope bridge and looked down into the gorge about 350 feet below me. My fears were heightened by the wind, which caused the bridge to very gently sway even before I was on it. And then about halfway across the bridge, I totally chickened out and really wanted to turn back, actually started to turn back, but then realized the end was as far away as the beginning, so I had to keep going. I had reached the point of no return. Cutting of the rope bridge was a one-shot deal. It was one take, and that was it. If we didn't get it right the first time, we'd have to start all over again from scratch. So I placed numerous cameras in the river gorge, so I was sure that I had all the best angles covered. We had to not only wait for the effects to be right and safe, but we had to wait for the sun to come out. And I remember George Gibbs rigging the cutters that were electronically explosive and then rigging the dummies on the bridge. And at the last moment, George put dust all over the bridge so when the bridge broke, there would be some residue, like a shadow of the bridge's former self. It was like a countdown waiting to watch the space shuttle go up, knowing that everything rides in this one shot. Now, by the way, I gotta call out one more hallmark moment in this film, specifically in the aforementioned rope bridge scene. 
It's right before Indy cuts the bridge where he realizes he's surrounded on both sides and says, Oh, shit. Yeah, now to a 12-year-old, let's just say that little S-word drop has had quite the fucking influence on me. Oddly enough, that's one of my strong takeaways from this film. I think the reason it's so memorable for me is because, albeit a dark film, it comes off as gratuitous and horribly out of place. And I don't profess to be an expert on anything, but I do believe this is the only curse word we hear across the franchise. But hey, Wapa Nation, if I'm wrong on that, hit me up. For all its dark themes, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom ends on, of course, a happy note. That is to say that not only does Indy liberate the Sankara Stone, returning it to the village it had been stolen from, but also liberates all the village's missing children as they all rush into the village and into the arms of their parents. It's here where the village elder tells Indy, quote, Now you can see the magic of the rock that you bring back. To which Indy affirms, quote, Yes, I understand its power now. This newfound faith and belief system is a far cry from his stance a year later in Raiders, where he breaks down the logistics of the, quote, power of the Ark of the Covenant to government representatives. Well, oh, the city of Tannis is one of the possible resting places of the Lost Ark. The Lost Ark? Yeah, the Ark of the Covenant, the chest the Hebrews used to carry around the Ten Commandments. What do you what mean, do you ten mean the commandments? You're talking about the Ten Commandments? Yes, the actual Ten Commandments, the original stone tablets that Moses brought down out of Mount Harab and smashed, if you believe in that sort of thing. If you believe in that sort of thing? Indiana Jones, you are a man of a wavering faith. And faith? Well, that's the basis for the third film. But that is another story for another time. Watpa Nation, it's so good to be back, but that's all the time we have for today. And just remember that What A Time To Be Alive can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, and wherever most podcasts can be found. So hit that download button and please subscribe so you can also hear all the other episodes in the archives. And please leave us a review. I actually read those reviews and take your feedback very seriously. And I also wanna hear from you about the kind of content you want me to cover. So reach out to me at Wattpa Show on Twitter, and don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Wattpa Show. And if you have questions or general feedback about the show, things you'd like to hear, or random insults about my shitty New York accent, email me at wattpashow at gmail.com. And by all means, check us out on Facebook on the What a Time to Be Alive Facebook page, where all week long I'll be posting goodies about Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. But that'll do it for this episode of What a Time to Be Alive. Take care of yourselves and each other. <laughs>